Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show. This is Ravi Gupta. Chris Stewart is on vacation. So I am stepping in for him today by myself, but I'm actually not really by myself because I have on a guest who I've been meeting to talk to for a long time, former Secretary of Education, Margaret Spellings, who was the Secretary of Education from 2005 to 2009. She then served as the president of the University of North Carolina system and most recently was named the CEO of the Bipartisan Policy Center in D.C. Secretary Spellings, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, okay. There's so much I can ask you about, but I want to start with this report that you are part of from the Chamber of Commerce. It was called Looking Back to Look Forward. Could you tell us a little bit about just what the genesis of this project was? Well, I really commend my friends at the Chamber of Commerce because, you know, it's really been an important report to bring kind of all sides of the spectrum together, leadership in the civil rights community and the academic community and the practitioner community, the policymaker community, to really take a hard stop, look, and listen at, at what we know over the last 20, 25 years since the enactment of No Child Left Behind. And so I was proud to be part of it. And I think, you know, there's certainly some things to be proud of and encouraged about. And yet, as we know, have plenty of work to do. And so in taking a step back, I think for our audience, I think No Child Left Behind has been co-mingled with a lot of different policies in people's minds and also by the politics of No Child Left Behind. But give us a quick synopsis of just what was in No Child Left Behind and who supported it at the time. Well, in my office, I have a framed montage that includes the Senate vote on No Child Left Behind, which was 87 to 10. Wow. Hard to imagine that something of that consequence would be enacted with those sorts of margins today. It was absolutely a bipartisan initiative with leaders like Ted Kennedy, John Boehner, obviously President Bush, my boss, Judd Gregg, and George Mitchell were the four principal players. And, you know, our thesis was that we needed to do a whole lot better by all children, that our federal role and our federal responsibility was as that gap closer that the U.S. Department of Education had always been founded on the principle of, of civil rights, if you will, Title I, IDEA, various programs. You know, it's all about, you know, leveling the playing field. And so the thesis of No Child Left Behind is that we needed to care enough to find out, as I say now, how every kid was doing in these two important subjects of reading and math and that we assess kids every year in those two important subjects and one time in high school so that we can really see, are they making progress? Are our federal investments targeted to achievement and closing those gaps? And, and how can we focus on those priorities and those kids? And you know, a key part of it was also just the way that we tracked the data, right? Absolutely. Yeah. For the first time. And, and it was more than just that because... Prior to that, not every state participated in the National Assessment of Education Progress, our education report card. It was a, you know, 32 states this year, 28 states next year, not the same states. But, you know, importantly, we had a check on the system generally, on the quality of standards. And so it was really an important way to really get the facts before policymakers at all levels but to get that federal role calibrated in a respectful way with state and local policymakers too. Yeah, so it was it was requirement of testing, which I think is hard for people to believe didn't exist before. There was a requirement of reporting data. Disaggregated data. Yes. So explain what that means, the disaggregated data. Yeah, that means that instead of just blobbing it all together into averages like Lake Wobegon and being happy with ourselves that the high achievers are offsetting the lack of progress of learners who are not making it, that we were going to hold ourselves accountable by subgroups. So girls and boys, special ed learners, African-American, Hispanic, et cetera. 
and that we would look at those individual subgroups of students with a critical eye to raising all the votes. And so, yeah, and so this passes with a bipartisan consensus. And not only that, for, for the purposes of your report, it was the premise of No Child Left Behind was largely accepted by your successors. Absolutely. Both Arnie Duncan and John King and, and Barack Obama. And so you had this unprecedented period of time, really from Clinton in a certain way, because he, he sort of laid some of the groundwork for testing in that administration and also for things like charter schools. So And governors around the country like Jim Hunt in North Carolina and George Bush in Texas. And, and it was all, you know, we had a, a lot of you know, unanimity around standards and assessment and caring enough to find out um, urgency around closing the achievement gap that I would say went from Clinton through Obama. Yeah, Clinton to Obama, you know, and, and I would throw in public charter schools. I, I used to be a public charter school principal in Tennessee, and this certainly was true there too. And so you had this kind of, this consensus on a bunch of different educational interventions, and that is the backdrop for your Chamber of Commerce report, which basically says, well, what worked and what didn't work over that period of time? And so what are the highlights from that report? Well, I think it's clear and, you know, not a lot of people give it its due credit, but, you know, the achievement gap did close and has closed because we have cared to find out. And uh, particularly when we were leaning in, and I would say it was in the Bush administration and, and the Obama administration, and then it became what I call the era of local control where states had a lot more latitude to kind of do their thing with the system, and we have seen either a flattening or declines. And so when we had, you know, kind of that steadiness around the federal role, resourcing, achievement for everybody, you know, we made progress, just simple as that. So anyway, we're going to get into some of the details about the whys and wherefores, but... Yeah, tell me a little bit more about this era of local control. So when when did that start and where would you sort of place that apex? Are we in the apex? Have we yet to see it? Oh, I mean, this is the era of local control. And when I say that, I mean, I guess that's a generous way of saying it means every <laughs> man for himself. Yeah. And that is to say that, you know, there's lots of fine print. You know this as a school principal. What's the end size? What's the definition of an academic year? All of those sorts of mechanical things. And there's been overall a loosening of the system so that, you know, there's less muscle. And frankly, you know, I, th I think that's very much related to some of the flattening and the, and the declines that we've seen. Now, yes, we had a pandemic and we had a financial recession, et cetera. So a lot of factors in there too, but kind of the quid pro quo was when resources got tight around 08, you know, we took our foot off the gas. Oh, so like post-recession. I think, you know, it was like, well, we can't, we don't have the money to spend on kids, so we're going to let the air out on accountability. Yeah, and you see now a bipartisan consensus emerging against standardized tests. So when I talk to, you know, I've talked to people on this podcast and other podcasts from as far right as Corey DeAngelis to as far left as, you know, union activists who all seem to hate standardized tests now. And that that's a consensus that feels new, but actually when I think about it, when I was in Tennessee, with the rise of Common Core, which is kind of like a couple of steps on from NCLB, right? Like without No Child Left Behind, there is no Common Core. Common Core is an effort to get even more national to 
uh, and we could kind of spell that out. Because it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, like in No Child Left Behind, we weren't telling people exactly what the test was. No, absolutely. With Common Core incentivizing states to adopt a uniform test under the theory that we can then measure quality state to state. So it's like a supersized NAEP. But also if you have a kid who's moving from one state to the next, they can count on a certain continuum of learning. And it also c- can create a sort of standardization of textbooks. That's right. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say, you know, we are, are constantly calibrating and recalibrating the federal role. In my humble opinion, of course, I think I think No Child Left Behind kind of got it right because there was, I mean, we weren't setting standards. Actually, South Carolina had much more rigorous standards than Texas. They had higher failure rates, mm-hmm. but, you know, and so we had a lot of information, but there was also a lot of authority at the local level. And I think, frankly, tying teacher pay to performance was one of the things that kind of started to tip the boat over. Yeah, Common Core started to tip the boat over. So, you know, we overplayed our hand and killed the goose that was laying the golden egg, which was data, information, and muscle around accountability and consequences. And so if you had it your way, you would have stopped short of some of the race to the top era policies. I mean, if I had to do it again, I, yeah, I would, you know, yeah. were those things that are certainly legitimate and supportable and bear out? Yes. But I think it was the beginning of this bipartisan backlash that we've seen around the country in some places. But before we get too super dire on that, I do want to say that the guts of No Child Left Behind, testing every kid every year, two subjects, reporting it, disaggregating it, that's still true. And, you know, there's not a lot of federal policy that you can say that about that is sound and had been on the books now for, you know, 20 years. And do you worry that that is under attack? Because I see so, I mean, for instance, in the higher ed level, which we'll get to, I would love to ask you about your experience at UNC, given some of the recent developments in higher ed, but certainly there's been a successful effort to undo standardized testing as it relates to higher education. And then during the pandemic, there were all these moratoriums on standardized testing that have now largely we've moved on from, but I feel like the lingering anti-testing politics are here to stay. And and what I find interesting is how durable that anti-testing rhetoric is on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. I mean, I worry about it. That's why I use language like we need to care enough to find <laughs> out, <laughs> you know? yeah. um, which is, you know, it seems pretty benign. And I mean, I think Republicans have their own motivations for why they're against it and Democrats and, and you know, unions or whatever. Uh, likewise, they end up maybe meeting at the same place. Often, I think, you know, Republicans fear, hey, these are not my kids. These are scarce resources. I'm in suburban Dallas, you know, accountability is meaningless to me. It siphons off resources to those, quote unquote, left behind, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, that's part of the narrative. And then on the other side, I mean, you know, do teachers want to have their pay tied to, you know, testing outcomes? Not really. <laughs> so, and then, and then kind of all of the mental health and post-COVID, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a cocktail of you know, kind of bad news with standardized assessment being at the mercy of these themes. Yeah. And what's fascinating, I think in looking, you know, in the two states I have most experience in New York, where I grew up and where I am right now in Tennessee, where I ran schools, what I found fascinating, and I went to law school with John King. And so I got to see his experience up here in New York at the time when he was secretary of education up here. The Common Core work, including some of the NCLB, uh, some of the Race to the Top work, 
even if it was right on policy, and I think there's like a good debate about whether it was the good policy or not. Um, I have complicated views, especially about Common Core. The politics were really bad. And I think like if, if we look back, there's something to be learned from that, which is I think maybe this dovetails with your work at the Bipartisan Policy Center is I'm starting to think that our national politics is so toxic that we have to be very careful what we mandate at the federal level and have to be like a little bit sparing in the fights that we take on because anything coming from the national level is going to be tinged with the politics of the administration that pushes it. Like when you look at No Child Left Behind, I don't know if we could do, not, it wasn't that George W. Bush was like the least polarizing president ever. Like I was a kid, you know, coming out of high school at that time. And I remember how tough that felt at the time, but that was a golden age of bipartisanship compared to where we are right now on education issues, you know? It absolutely was. Absolutely was. Yeah. That's interesting. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've listened to the Solda Story podcast. A big part of No Child Left Behind was a major emphasis on reading, a yep. tripling of funding at the federal level for reading around what is now called research-based or high-quality instructional material. All these things that are new, again, you know, we were talking about 20-plus years ago, and I remember one of the quotes from that from that podcast was, well, if George Bush is for it, I'm not, you know. <laughs> yes. <even> though, <laughs> yeah. Even though, you know, it was righteous and, and we now know that, you know, this is how you teach kids how to read. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've long said and I think I said this to Arnie when I had him on this on one of our podcasts is, and he agreed with me that No Child Left Behind is among one of the least understood pieces of legislation in, in recent American history. Like I think most people, especially Democrats, you know, where I, I come out of the Obama world, there was a certain rhetoric around it that I think was at odds with the reality of the bill and also ignored the fact that there were all these civil rights groups lining up behind it because they felt it was actually a tool for equity. Absolutely. And, and was, and is. And so it's just, I mean, you know, we had this interesting political coalition of the business community and the civil rights community, Ed Trust, the chamber, et cetera, you know, in opposition to the unions and the, I'll call them federalist Republicans. And so they are now ascendant. We were ascendant when the law was enacted, 87 to 10. But, you know, <laughs> the worm will turn, I hope. And, you know, the thing that I despair about is if ever there was a time to have urgency and triage and care enough to find out post-COVID, this is it. We're going to be in a nation of kids and, and grown-ups who are not equipped to see about themselves or our country or our democracy or anything else. And our commissioner here in Texas, Mike Marathi, you probably know, you know, talks about in Argentina when the schools were closed for a year. I mean, it took them decades and decades to overcome that. Yeah. And so, you know, this is serious stuff. Well, let's go back to this report from the chamber. So let's just remind ourselves of those highlights. So from your perspective, if I'm hearing you correctly, the disaggregation of data, the testing mandates, that stuff worked. Yes. And what didn't work or worked less well was when we tried to prescribe solutions at a centralized level around those things. And it seems like you're particularly harsh of some of the uh, teacher evaluation and accountability measures. Well, I, you know, I was for it. I'm for it. Do I think it's a good idea to, to look at, you know, who's effective with kids in the classroom? I just think maybe we, you know, jump the shark and begat this kind of backlash around you know, kind of the core premise. But there were other things. I mean, you know, the consequences of, you know, when a failing school and, you know, reestablishing the school or charterizing it or, you know, those things I think worked less well also. But hey, you know, when you make policy and law, 
you know, you have the information that's available at hand. And of course you make mistakes. We all do. And that's why it's important to course correct over time and to have political leadership that can make good sense out of that. Yeah. And, you know, we've covered a couple of recent developments because there's, there's a constantly evolving narrative about what works and what doesn't. And obviously there's some certain people with, with a lot of stake in like how we spin data. There was a, a piece published in Education Next earlier this year that basically poured cold water on those people who had been saying, oh, all these years of reform, it doesn't work. And it basically looked at data and said, actually, reform worked. And if you control for certain key points, like No Child Left Behind being one of them in the data, actually, student achievement increased uh, in response to that, or at least correlated with, obviously, there in education debates, there will always be a debate over what's causative or not. Right, exactly. And then the second part was, you know, Stanford, I'm sure you saw this, their newest credo study on charters is as strong as it's ever been. And every every few years when they come out with a new study, they're showing that urban charter schools in particular, but even for the first time, charter schools generally are dramatically outperforming traditional public schools. And so you're starting to see, all right, the key tenets of reform worked, but the politics linger and the and the narratives are stale. Like, you know, not everybody's reading these reports and saying, all right, like, I'm revising my opinion on this legislation or whatever. Yeah. I think what might have changed though, Ravi, is, you know, do we all still believe that every kid in our public schools ought to have an opportunity to be successful and that they can in our public schools? And I think that's where we, you know, part company. <laughs> well, let me posit a theory for you since you're at the Bipartisan Policy Center. In talking to a lot of education activists and experts from across the political divide and then politicians. Here's my working theory and broad brush about what has happened to the narrative that you just described, which I continue to believe is in the ability of every kid to succeed in their own way, is on the left where I've spent most of my time, there's this narrative that, well, schools can't solve poverty. And it's a weird narrative, but I, I think what it's done is it treats schools as different than every other solution that progressives push, whether it's housing, access, increased access to medicine and improvement of the medical system, et cetera. It almost treats schools like if you can't solve all of poverty, then you're somehow illegitimate. Jonathan Chait wrote a really good piece about this recently in the New York, in New York Magazine, basically saying like, why do we treat schools differently? Yes, they're one part of a larger set of solutions. They happen to be, in my opinion, the most powerful set of solutions. Me too. Absolutely. So that's on the left. I think on the right, what, what I found is inherent in the sort of descent, like, I think they're just like an, is an innate sense of attraction to de decentralization and almost like pull yourself up by your bootstraps lingo that makes it sometimes hard to do the work of a robust public education system. I saw this and I started Mississippi's first charter school and I worked with mostly Republicans down there. And that was, I had to kind of adopt language to match that kind of ethic sometimes when I was lobbying in the Capitol for that. And I think those two narratives kind of dominate right now in their respective circles. Whereas before it was, it was different in both conservative and liberal circles. They both, both conservatives were, were part of this sort of Reaganite patriotism that re was reflected in schools. And, and George W. Bush certainly was, was robust in that as were you. 
And then on the, on the left, it was this sense of like a missionary zeal to fight poverty through our school system. And somehow we've walked away from all that. That's my theory. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, on the right, we're seeing, I mean, do people believe in the institution of public education? Right. And on the left, this sort of apologia about, you know, that don't ask too much of our schools. Or of our kids. Absolutely. Thankfully, we moved a little bit off of that. Like, I think like two or three years ago, and I just wrote a piece about this critiquing something from Ibram Kendi on this front. But there used to be this sense that like we were like heat-seeking missiles for excuses for kids, which is the opposite of what we used to be, which is like we need to come up with every excuse for why a kid can't succeed. Amen. And I think we've started to purge the left of that kind of rhetoric, but it will always be there. I hope so. I'm not sure, but it okay. will always be there. But I think like, it's certainly not as pronounced as it was two to three years ago, but there will always be a civil war within the left on that because of the nature of how big the coalition is. You know, it still includes Barack Obama and Elizabeth Warren and AOC. You know, it's like, it's always going to be challenging. And, and on the right, I think, I think the, the, the Jeb Bush Republican right now is, is being replaced by the Ron DeSantis Republican. And it's very different rhetoric, you know? And, and I, I wonder where you think this is going. Like, like, what's the best case scenario? If you're thinking about how to, like, do a little jujitsu on the environment that we're in right now, maybe, like, take some of the rhetoric and values that predominate on both sides of the political aisle and try to push it in the direction of increased student achievement. How would you do that? And maybe that's a tall order. Yeah, very tall order. I mean, I guess I wonder, you know, and this is total Pollyanna, but we do have to believe, and it's, you know, fundamental to our democracy and to our country, is do we believe in the institution of public education and why we need it, why it's important, why it has to be high-performing, why we spend a lot of our tax dollars, why we have local governance, why we have three levels of governance, you know, et cetera. And that, so first principles around the fundamental nature of this institution and the centrality to our country. Yeah. And so I think the wheels are off that bus a bit. Uh, <laughs> there's kind of an every man for himself, every woman for him, herself. And we're in this era, what I call of a distributed kind of a system. So it's pods and it's you know, ch charters and it's vouchers and it's, you know, I mean, it's every man and woman and kid for him or herself, as opposed to this faith in the institution and the collective. And I mean, I'm sounding not very Republican right now, but <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I do think, I mean, and we've had a bipartisan hold around our public schools. Yeah. Now, you know, both sides have kind of jumped the shark, but how do we get that faith in and this is obviously being challenged in our universities and our courts and our churches and law enforcement. I mean, you name it, every institution's under question and siege and threat, you know, at the moment. So yeah, in, in your vision, would you undo most of those schools of choice? So like even charters, magnets, things no, like that? No, of course not. Hell no. Absolutely. Yeah, all, okay. no, but I mean, and obviously, as you know, well, charter schools are public schools. But yeah. I, I think, and again, this is the beauty of the you know, elegant simplicity of no child left behind. We just want to know how the kids are doing. Right. Well, this is fascinating because I've asked a lot of ESA and voucher experts and I've contrary to a lot of people on the left, I'm like curious as to how this works out. And I'm curious to see how the federalism of it all works out, like to see like what actually happens on the ground and we're in our media company going to hit the ground at the beginning of the school year to assess the schools that are out there and, and see how they're truly doing. Cause I want to keep an open mind about it. But one constant 
debate I've been having with proponents of ESAs and vouchers is there is a, a strong desire to exclude them from standardized testing. And my point to them is, if you believe in it, believe in it. Let the data show that these are successful. And th that's a constant debate is because there's a movement right now to, to move pretty fast, like in the direction of ESA vouchers, and then also exclude them from the data roll up to tell us whether they're effective or not. And that's, that's where I'd depart company with the, the supporters of ESAs and vouchers. Me too. If we're going to spend public dollars, we ought to know if we're getting anything for them. At every level. Agreed. And you know that you mentioned the, you know, federal policy making and whatnot. And I'm for choice. It's just if you're, you know, 10 cent investor on the dollar, it's hard to be the driver of it's the old he who has the gold makes the rules. So those are, are rightfully going to be state and local policy decisions. But you're right. I mean, we got to have accountability wherever it is. Is there anybody out there, state level, governor or secretary of education or both, that you look at today and you say, all right, they've got it going on. I'm, you're actually really impressed by what they're doing. Well, I mean, I think some of the stuff that Glenn Youngkin has done, he's kind of an accountability guy. Obviously, he's not immune to this narrative of, of you know, books and wokeness yeah. and, and all of that. <laughs> but, you know, to me, some of the stuff that that's a bit of a sideshow. I mean, you know, I want to know, can the kids read anything? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's a good call. Yeah, it doesn't matter what books are in the library if they can't read yeah, them. Yeah, Harry Potter, The Bluest Eye. I mean, you know, can you read? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was funny. We actually talked about Yunkin recently. I think it was with Chris on this show, Chris Stewart, where we were looking at his policies and be like, actually, if you just read the, what he's doing and ignore the CRT stuff, it actually makes a lot of sense. And that's what's fascinating is the sort of hot-blooded culture war politics are masking and in some cases distracting from a real opportunity here. Yeah, exactly. And you know what, honestly, I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm not uh, completely schooled in this, but, you know, DeSantis has been very, you know, vocal about assessment. And so, we're, you know, we're not going to have one test one day, you know, so now we have more testing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, listen, I've never met a test I didn't like, but, you know. We covered it and and, and everything, as you know, depends on the uh, implementation. And at the time, this is when he first announced it. Our assessment was there is a version of what he was doing that actually makes more sense because it's lower stakes, more points on the continuum. Now, everything depends on implementation, and I and there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical of his ability to implement, given recent news. And we're about to do that in Texas. We're about to do that in Texas, probably in a special session. And, I mean, I'm all for it. It makes sense. But is that does that end up then becoming three high-stakes opportunity? With more squawking about too much testing, time will tell. Right. And it's, it's it's actually good practice. Like if you look at most good schools, they have, like we used to use this company called Achievement Network, which in the, in the years leading up to Common Core, they would give you four tests to give throughout the year that other charter schools would take so that you can measure yourself. I could be like, oh, we're, you know, exceeding KIPP's results in, or, you know, another school in Memphis or whatever, and, and actually benchmark yourselves against them. That's actually really helpful. Now, now, again, the implementation really matters. And the problem often here is that the politics, you know, are the are, are leading the, the cart here or whatever the sort of botch metaphor here is. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I think it, it's clear from the report to come back to that, that the guts of this importance of information disaggregation data and what it has told us is absolutely central and righteous. Yeah. But then when we start saying, well, 
we're going to pay teachers this way, or we're going to not promote kids to the next grade, or we're going to, it's all the, that stew of things that I think has been part of this backlash. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge debate. I would have never predicted it about my former state of Mississippi and all their practices and what's worked and what hasn't. You know, they, they had this what's so-called Mississippi miracle mm-hmm. uh, around their reading results, which right. which could include any number of measures because uh, if you're familiar with it, you know, Jim Barksdale down there had yep. had funded, you know, such great work on reading. Uh, he was also a big supporter of, of our schools down there. And what he... There are a couple of fascinating things about this. Number one is Nicholas Kristof goes down there and basically says, look, like change can happen outside of reform, totally neglecting the fact that most of these people who push these policies were reformers. Like Mississippi First was the education reform organization, like the most important group. For years, yeah. Yeah. But second of all, it's it's one of those things in education that makes it really hard because they're not controlled experiments. You have the third grade retention, you have the science of reading, you have the Barksdale Reading Institute, you have other reform- forms like charters, which cannot explain Mississippi's results because there are only a few of us. And you just go through all this stuff and, and there's plenty of other things that happen at the time, including fiscal reforms in Mississippi. And you can point to any number of things. And that's the challenge with education is it rarely presents opportunities to isolate a variable and say, this works. So you have to kind of go by your judgment. It makes it very hard to debate the results. Yeah. Well, okay. So you've been so generous with your time in looking to the future. So we've got this incredibly, I would say this period of high entropy is the way I think of it right now. So we've got artificial intelligence. We've got ESAs, vouchers. We've got very hot school politics in a way that feels you know, like school politics are never even killed, but I feel like at the moment they're even more culture warrior-ish than they seem to have been in the past. You put all this stuff together, plus all sorts of other stuff, international competition, you know, existing automation. COVID loss. COVID loss. Give us some reasons for optimism. Like when you think about the next five to 10 years, what's the best version of the story for us? Well, I think it has to start with leadership and it has to start with a gathering of first principles. So, you know, I'm obviously watching the you know, presidential race very keenly and seeing, you know, who can talk in that way. And I mean, I know Nikki Haley's record as a governor and, you know, Tim Scott, you know, is somebody who I think kind of gets it about why education is important. So, you know, on that side of the aisle, and I think obviously we know what the Biden administration, you know, playbook is. So we've, we've got to have people who continue just steady as she goes around these central questions on both sides of the aisle. And then, you know, two, I think we are learning a lot about, I, I'm very encouraged about the reading, the HQIM stuff. I think the Soul to Story stuff has been lit a fire on, under a lot of states and a lot of places. And then I do think there's a lot of energy around choice and vouchers and whatnot. And it is a solution. We'll see. And I think, you know, we need to call, you know, hold folks accountable for those results. But there's a lot of momentum and energy around something related to schools. And that's encouraging. Mm. I do have one more series of questions to ask you if you have a minute. You were the president of UNC. We recently had this affirmative action decision from the Supreme Court. I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you think the implications for university admissions are moving forward. Do you think schools are going to find alternative means to get at the same result? As you know, a lot of this stuff began in Texas. And so we have been you know, living in a system like this for, you know, I think two decades or more. And so, yes. Meaning a post-affirmative action system in Texas. A post-affirmative action mandate. And that we're not the only one, obviously. And so, you know, we have in Texas the thing where the top 10% of the graduating class of any high school 
you know, the worst high school in, in the state, the top 10% of those kids can go to our flagship universities. And so, you know, it has a leavening effect. But yes, there are certainly other tools in the toolkit that can be brought to bear. I'm uh, actually very interested to see how this anti-legacy stuff really opens up opportunity for a lot of people. Yes. So anyway, I think both elephants are on the table, but you know, I think there are ways for us to get student bodies that are that are in keeping with the future of our country. But, you know, I worry more honestly that we have kids who are ready to be successful in college of at any and every kind. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There, there seems to be more bipartisan consensus on ending legacies than almost any issue I've ever seen. It was north of 80% the last time I checked in polls of support. So that, I can't think of another education issue I've ever found where that has that kind of support. Yeah. The only thing about that is, as I used to say to my friends in the elite privates, I mean, they're not part of the solution. They're not part of the problem. I and mean, the truth is, yes, you can get rid of those, but in the aggregate, it's not that many spots. Yeah, I agree. It has to, there has to be some more. The big benefit, no matter how anybody feels about affirmative action, is that at least we're all having a conversation about the state of higher education with a much more pointed, you know, sort of lens than we did before this thing went down. And as long as we can hold our attention, which is a big thing to ask of our society, hold our attention, actually push through some reforms, yeah. then maybe we'll be better off. Yeah. Robbie, it's been great to visit with you. Yes, thank you. You're a very impressive person, and thank you for all the good work you've done along the years. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I'm a big fan of No Child Left Behind, and my experience in education was one of bipartisanship. And so, you know, your current work, as well as your work before, literally affected the work I did in the sense that it was that momentum that carried me into schools but also made our jobs a lot easier. And now your work at the Bipartisan Policy Center, that's that's what we're all about here at the branch. So thank you so much, Secretary. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your service. This was really wonderful. Thank you for being generous with your time. You're welcome. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris, Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show. 